0: Pediatrics Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Christine Sufchuk, and today we're going to be talking about dermatophyte infections. You may know these common rashes as the tinea rashes, but they're caused by a group of fungi called dermatophytes. And basically what a dermatophyte is, is it's a type of fungus that requires keratin to grow. And so these are funguses that commonly infect areas of our skin, our hair, and our nails. These are things that we diagnose very, very commonly within pediatrics, but I think just overall, this is a good topic to have a good grasp on because this is something that we also see in adult medicine. Now, there are a couple different types of fungi that fall into this group called dermatophytes, and those are things like trichophyton and microsporum, But in general, unlike a lot of other skin infections, we don't really care a whole lot about what specific bug causes these rashes. We just care that it's a fungus and that it's susceptible to our treatment, which most of them are. So we really don't go digging too deeply into exactly what bug is causing our rash. Instead, we focus a lot more on where the rash is and exactly how extensive the rash is. And those are really more the things that are going to drive our therapy in terms of both what medication we choose to treat these infections, as well as the duration of therapy that we're going to prescribe. So like I said, these are the tinea infections. And so we'll just go through the most common tinea rashes that we see in pediatrics. And then we'll talk about how we diagnose these dermatophyte infections. And then finally, we'll talk about treatment options. So I think the most classic and quintessential dermatophyte infection is tinea corporis. Tinea corporis is also known colloquially as ringworm. And it typically presents as a single annular lesion that is scaly, sometimes a little bit pruritic. Um, but typically has a central clearing and this sort of erythematous and very well demarcated edge. I should also mention, since this is a dermatology talk, um, it would be helpful if you kind of are having difficulty picturing these rashes or if you've never seen some of these rashes to do a quick Google search or even look um, on somewhere like visual diagnosis after this episode just so you can get an idea of what I'm talking about. So as I was saying, ringworm is this annular scaly lesion, usually with a central clearing and this very erythematous, sharply demarcated border. Sometimes you can present with multiple annular lesions. Sometimes it's just the one. And some people are itchy with this and some people are not. Tinea capitis is another dermatophyte infection. Capitis makes me think of a a cap, like a baseball cap. And that helps me remember that this is a dermatophyte infection of the scalp. So oftentimes we see this in pediatrics and it presents almost like a little area of alopecia or an area of hair loss. So this is very interesting. and It's also very testable because what we see in tinea capitis is a little bit different than what we see in other things that cause circular areas of alopecia. And what I mean by that is when you look at the scalp of a patient who has tinea capitis, you see what we call black dot alopecia. And what that means is you see actually that kind of peppered appearance of black or dark hair follicles that have been broken kind of on the, along the shaft of the hair itself. And so it has this sort of stippled, peppered appearance in the middle of the area of alopecia. This is in contrast to other causes of alopecia that typically present with just a clear kind of bald area and no broken hair shaft in the middle. So if you see a kid who has a circular area of alopecia on their scalp and you see that peppered or black dot appearance, think about tinea capitis. Sometimes these kids are itchy, sometimes they're not. It really is a little bit variable from person to person. Um, And sometimes you'll also find that they have either occipital or posterior cervical lymphadenopathy. Now, tinea capitis can get kind of ugly. And what I mean by that is that it can be complicated by this thing called a carrion, which is a, actually it's an immune response to the fungus itself, But it looks very painful, and it's just really, really pussy and boggy. So if you have someone who has this patchy area of alopecia, this black dot alopecia, and you think they have tinea capitis, but let's say they haven't been treated, they may develop a carry-on and have this very boggy, inflamed, tender area with even some associated pus. Um... And it can really be confusing because it almost looks like a superimposed bacterial infection of that area. So you might be thinking to yourself, maybe this child scratched their head and then they got this superimposed infection. But in reality, a carry-on is actually a very, very common complication of tinea capitis, and it's simply an immune response that your body is mounting against that fungal infection. So don't be fooled. Don't start antibiotics, just keep the child on an antifungal medication. Now, our treatment, which we'll talk a little bit more in depth about later, for dermatophyte infections that involve the hair follicles, which you would imagine tinea capitis would, right, because it's on the scalp. Um, treatment for those infections actually goes straight to systemic therapy, typically with something like griseofulvin. And we want to really treat these kids aggressively because we want to avoid doing permanent damage to their hair follicles because that can lead to permanent alopecia, which of course is a outcome that we definitely, definitely want to avoid in our patients. So tinea capitis can get pretty ugly, but it's not the last type of tinea. We're going all the way down the body here. Um, The next type of tinea infection is tinea cruris. This is also known as jock itch, and it's a dermatophyte infection of the groin area. This is typically a rash that is seen in young athletes because they are often wearing tight athletic clothing. Sometimes that doesn't breathe very well, sweating a lot, and they're really creating that gross, warm, wet environment that fungi love to thrive in. And so we often see this infection in our young athletes. It looks very similar to tinea corporis. It has sort of that scaly appearance. Typically, jock itch will affect more the inner thighs and the buttocks. Um, And one clinical pearl that I think is pretty useful is that it oftentimes it spares the scrotum. So that's a good tip to keep in mind when you're evaluating someone who you think may have tinea cruris, but you're also kind of thinking the possibility of candidal infection is also there and kind of trying to tell that rash apart if it involves the scrotum, it's more likely to be a candidal infection, whereas if it only involves really the thighs and the buttock area, probably more likely to be a tinea cruris or a jock itch infection always examine the feet in an athlete who has jock itch because, as you can imagine, someone who is an athlete who's constantly outside, constantly sweating, constantly in sweaty sneakers and sweaty athletic gear, they are at high risk for both infection in the groin area and infection in the feet. So if you have someone who has tinea curis, always check out their feet. That brings us nicely to the topic of tinea pedis, which is a dermatophyte infection of the feet. Um, Colloquially, we call this athlete's foot. And really, it's a scaly rash that is often found really like between the toes um, and on the bottom of the foot. Some people find this to be an itchy rash. Some people describe it sort of as like a burning feeling. And other people are completely asymptomatic other than the other than the fact that they have this peeling skin sort of in between their toes and on the bottom of their feet. Another dermatophyte infection that we see in pediatrics is onychomycosis, which is a dermatophyte infection actually of the nails, so the fingernails and the toenails. This can be kind of tricky in kids because they're constantly bumping into things and having sort of traumatic injuries to their toes and to their toenails and their fingernails, Um, And so it's always good to keep in mind that a child who comes in with what might look like onychomycosis, meaning a nail that's yellow or dystrophic or thickened in appearance, may have a fungal infection, but they may also just have a sort of post-traumatic change in that nail. And so if it's a mild enough case, it's an okay idea to just kind of watch and wait and see if it resolves with time. And of course, if it doesn't resolve with time, moving ahead with treatment for a dermatophyte infection would be very, very reasonable. Now, onychomycosis is kind of interesting because the treatment varies depending on the severity of the disease. So mild disease, um, which typically is sort of involving less than 50% of the nail itself, you could start off with topical therapy and see if that works. Oftentimes children have thinner nails and they grow fairly quickly. So topical therapy for mild onychomycosis might be sufficient. However, if it's a severe infection, it's the whole nail, you know, just go ahead and go straight to systemic therapy with something like oral grisiofolvin. So those are really the most common dermatophyte infections that we see in pediatrics. It's kind of all the tinea rashes and onychomycosis. Now, you'll notice one is missing from this list, and that is tinea versicolor. We also call that rash pityriasis versicolor. And that describes this rash that's sort of hypopigmented. We see it a lot in the summertime because other areas of the skin get tanned and this, these sort of whitish splotches don't get tanned. And so they're kind of hypopigmented macules caused by a different fungus that is actually not a dermatophyte. So even though it's called tinea versicolor, it's not caused by a dermatophyte. And actually Malassezia does not require keratin to grow. And so that's why this kind of doesn't fall into this particular category. However, suffice it to say that tinea versicolor or pitioriasis versicolor kind of goes by both names, is also susceptible to a lot of the treatments that we'll talk about in this episode. So let's talk about diagnosis. How do we diagnose a dermatophyte infection in a pediatric patient or really in any patient? So most of the time, dermatophyte infections are clinical diagnoses, meaning you use your history and you use your physical exam. And after you've done both of those things, you can come to the conclusion that, yeah, that rash is ringworm, it's tinea corporis, or that rash is tinea pedis, it's athlete's foot, or whatever the case may be. However, there are certain situations where where you may be about to commit a patient to, let's say, an eight-week course of griseofulvin, And in that scenario, you may want to be absolutely sure that the rash that you are treating is in fact caused by a fungal infection and your patient needs antifungal therapy. I say this because there are a fair amount of rashes that are annular, that are scaly, that are mildly pruritic. And, um, may be easily confused with things like tinea corporis or ringworm. So for example, let's say you have a patient who comes in, they have an annular scaly rash. It doesn't really have any central clearing. It doesn't really have, it doesn't really have any itchiness to it. And you're like, yeah, you know, I think this is probably tinea corporis, but it could also be something else. It could be psoriasis, or it could be uh, granuloma annular, or it could be something like nummular eczema, and you're really not sure. And so before you go ahead and proceed with therapy, something that you could do to aid in your diagnostic process would be to get a KOH prep from the active area of the lesion. So usually that's kind of in the border area. That's where you're going to find the most active fungal infection. So you'd take a little bit of a scraping from that area, do a KOH prep, and look at it under the microscope, And if you see hyphae, then you would know that that is a fungal infection, you'd feel pretty confident in your diagnosis, and you could move forward. However, if you don't see hyphae, you would say, hmm, maybe it is psoriasis, or maybe this is nummular eczema. And so I think in that way, you can kind of frame whether or not you really need to do a KOH prep for your patient or not. I will say, knowing that you see hyphae on your KOH prep is very high yield for the board exam. Um, They love to test this. I don't know why, but just know that if you see hyphae on your KOH prep, that is a fungal infection. Now, moving on to treatment, how do we treat these dermatophyte infections? And like I said, this is a little bit different, right, because we're not basing our treatment Off of a particular bug or off of susceptibilities, the way that we do for the vast majority of other skin infections. You know, think about if you have a kid who has an abscess, you poke the abscess, you get a little bit of pus, you grow it in a culture, and then you can kind of direct your antibiotic therapy based off of that. Well, for these, they're pretty much, this group of fungal infections, the dermatophytes, are pretty susceptible to all of the antifungals that we'll talk about. So it's not really based on what organism you're treating. It's more based on where the rash is and whether or not that rash involves a hair follicle and whether or not that rash involves a nail. So if the rash is just very clean cut, it doesn't involve hair, it doesn't involve nails, let's say you just have a little bit of tinea corporis on uh, the back of your hand or something, you could go ahead and start with topical treatment. This is the same for all of the tinea infections. So tinea corporis, tinea pedis, tinea cruris. If there's no hair follicle and no nail involved, start with topical treatment. Those are things like azoles, um, clotrimazole, Miconazole, ketoconazole. There's like a, a bunch of them, uh, but in general, it's either a 1% or a 2% cream and you use it one or two times per day. So you're going to use the topical ointments for two to four weeks. Usually we want to use them for at least a week after symptom resolution, just because we know that that gives us a higher cure rate. Topical terbinafine and butenafine are also an option. These are also 1% creams and we can use them, you know, twice a day for one or two weeks. Keep in mind that if you have a patient who has a tinea infection and they are not getting better on topical therapy, you can always upgrade them to an oral antifungal regimen. In contrast, if you have a patient who has a dermatophyte infection, and it involves the hair follicle or it's a severe infection of a nail, like a toenail or a fingernail, you'd want to go straight to systemic therapy. And what systemic therapy you can choose and what options are available to you depend on your patient's age. So if you're under two years of age, you can't use griseofulvin and you can't use terbenafine. They're not FDA approved for the, that age group. And so, for those kids who are less than two years of age, you have to use oral fluconazole, given daily, give it for a couple of weeks, um, usually for two weeks after symptoms resolve to prevent recurrence. If you're two years of age or older, you are eligible to receive oral griseofulvin, which is kind of our most tried and true. Oldest antifungal that we can give systemically. This is something we've been giving for years. It came out in the 1950s, and we know that this is a fairly safe drug. What's kind of interesting about Griseofulvin is that Griseofulvin is fungostatic, which means that it doesn't actually kill fungus, it just stops the fungus from being incorporated into the skin. And so that's why we have to give it for such a long period of time usually anywhere from six to eight weeks. And really what's happening is we're giving the grisiofulvin and we're preventing the fungus from being incorporated into the skin. And so really to achieve a cure of your fungal infection, you have to actually wait for your new skin to grow up and the old skin that's infected with the fungus to slough off. So that's why grisiofulvin is given for such a long period of time. Anyway, if you're over two years of age, griseofulvin is fair game for you, and it's a really, really good drug. If you're over four years of age, you can then use terbinafine. It's an option for you. There's been recent studies that show that terbinafine and griseofulvin are both good choices for systemic antifungal therapy, so each is a good option. Terbinafine is fungicidal, and so it is a little bit of a shorter course because it does actually kill the fungus. So terbinafine treatment courses are typically more along the lines of four to six weeks in duration. Now for both of these drugs, grisiofulvin and terbinafine, they carry a risk of hepatotoxicity. So if you have a patient who has a history of elevated LFTs or some kind of chronic liver dysfunction, these are not drugs that I would give to a patient like that. But for the vast majority of otherwise healthy kids, these are very safe drugs. Another thing I wanted to mention is that when grisiofulvin came out in the 1950s, uh, we were all very worried about this hepatotoxicity risk. Um, It was a new drug. It was sort of perceived by the medical community as an unsafe drug or a risky drug. And so the, there was a practice to send both a CBC and some LFTs on patients who were going to be started on grisiofulvin therapy. And this still applies to derbenafine. But for grisiofulvent, it's been on the market for so long that um, I think most people now realize that it's actually a fairly safe drug and only check a CBC and LFTs prior to initiating treatment if you're planning on giving this treatment for a really long time, so over eight weeks or a really high dose. Terbenifene, in contrast, we do still check LFTs prior to initiating therapy just to make sure that we have a stable uh, liver function prior to giving this medication. Okay, so we talked about topical therapy, we talked about systemic therapy. The other thing that I wanted to mention was that there is sort of an alternative form of topical therapy, particularly for tinea capitis, and that is in the form of shampoos. So we have ketoconazole shampoo, and we have selenium sulfide shampoo. Both of those are useful as an adjunctive treatment in addition to your oral systemic therapy when you have a patient who has tinea capitis. All right, so we've talked about the common types of dermatophyte infections, how we diagnose them, how we treat them. And so I kind of wanted to wrap up this episode with a discussion on complications that arise from dermatophyte infections. One complication of dermatophyte infection is the development of a kerion, which we kind of already discussed. That's that vigorous immune response to a tinea capitis infection that gives you this boggy, pussy, infected-looking plaque on top of your head. And those things can be very easy to confuse with something like a superimposed bacterial infection. So, just keep in mind that a carrion is a complication of a dermatophyte infection. It's not a bacterial superinfection. And the treatment of a carrion is to continue to treat your fungal infection. Another complication of dermatophyte infection is what we call dermatophytid reaction, also called an id reaction. Some people will also call this autoexematization. And what that is, is it's, again, it's an immune response to dermatophyte antigens. So your immune system is really mounting this great immune response. And in conjunction with that immune response, you get this diffuse rash that is symmetrical. It's maculopapular. Mostly it's a papular rash that is very, very pruritic. So it's very itchy. It looks a lot like eczema. And that's why they call it auto It's kind of dry. It's kind of papular. And you'll notice that I haven't mentioned that it appears anywhere in particular. It's usually a very diffuse rash. And this can be very confusing, right? You have a kid who, let's say, has never have had eczema before. You started treating them one or two weeks ago for tinea, let's say, a ringworm infection. So tinea corporis. And then two weeks later, they come in, and they're just covered kind of all over their arms and legs with this rash that looks like eczema. Often, we also see it on the face. That is an id reaction. It's a very common reaction to the dermatophyte antigen, and it can be really easy to confuse with something like a drug reaction, because think about it. You just gave this child one or two weeks prior who had a dermatophyte, a new medicine, whether that was grisiofulvin, Terbenafine, a topical medication, they start using that medication regularly and then they come in with this diffuse rash. So you can see how it would be kind of easy to confuse with a drug reaction. However, drug reactions, keep in mind, they're typically urticarial, and what we're talking about here is really more of an eczematous rash. It's a pretty common complication of a dermatophyte rash. Now, how do we treat an id reaction or this autoexematization? Honestly, keep the patient on the antifungal therapy. It is not a drug reaction. Keep them on their antifungal therapy. And then as far as symptomatic management for this itchy eczematous rash, you can use the same kind of therapies that you would use for eczema. So that includes things like emollients, topical corticosteroids, and in general both with and without treatment, most id reactions will resolve within two to four weeks. So again, just keep your eyes peeled for this eczematous rash that occurs one to two weeks after the primary dermatophyte rash. All right, y'all, we're wrapping up our episode on dermatophyte infections The last thing I have to teach you is the answer to the question that every parent is going to ask you when they come in with their child who has ringworm or tinea corporis. And that is, when can they go back to school? The answer to that is once therapy has begun. Of course, a child who has a dermatophyte infection should not be rubbing their head on anybody else, shouldn't be sharing gloves or sharing helmets or sharing brushes or combs. Um, But as long as you have those basic kind of infection control techniques down, as long as the child has been on some kind of topical or systemic therapy, they can safely go back to school. And that's a wrap. That is our episode on dermatophyte infections. I hope you enjoyed it. Again, I'm Christine Sufchuk, and this is MD Notified, and we will see you next week. Thanks for listening to MD Notified, a pediatric podcast. References to the information sourced in this episode can be found in the Quick Notes outline, which is available on mdnotified.com. The contributors to MD Notified have no financial disclosures or conflicts of interest. The views, information, or opinions expressed are solely those of the individuals in today's episode and do not represent any other organizations or its employees. The primary purpose of this podcast is to inform and educate. This podcast does not constitute medical or professional advice or services. If you are a member of the general public and have questions, please make an appointment with your local board-certified pediatrician.